Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. What do you think about the following statements? Small businesses are overwhelmingly responsible for job creation, innovation, and American prosperity. Small businesses are more productive than big companies, and small businesses' owners are the core of democracy in America. Yet Washington, controlled by big business and engaged in crony capitalism, systematically discriminates against them. We all know this is true, right? Right? Well, no, these things are not true, or at least mostly not true. And here to explain why is Robert Atkinson, author of Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Rob is founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, and he's one of the country's foremost thinkers on innovation economics. Rob. Joining me to share his insights, his insights into business and the economy is Ron Nickel who led Boston Consulting Group's America's Practice and was global leader of its Media, Technology, and Communications Group. Ron, named as one of the top 25 consultants in the world, has developed strategies for dozen Fortune 100 companies. Both Rob and Ron are returning guests, and their long and impressive resumes can be found on our website. Ron, Rob? Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Rob? Um, <coughs> Big is beautiful, debunking the myth of small business. Why, why did you write the book? I, well, initially, I was getting more and more frustrated by exactly what you just said. Everybody in Washington and, and frankly, around the country assumes that all of these things are true. Small, bus <clears throat> small business creates the jobs or the innovators, et cetera. But when you really start to look at the evidence, so I started to just go and get government data. Uh, and, and what you find is it's, it's almost exactly the opposite. And I felt that we needed to set the record straight. We needed to have an honest discussion about the different relationship, different roles that small and big business have. Because if we didn't do that, we're increasingly demonizing large companies in the U.S., both parties. And as we do that, we're going to uh, make it harder to grow uh, the economy. We're going to make it harder to grow good jobs. Ron, what do you think of, how would you define a big business? You've worked with them. Well, I define a big business as a business that has scale. Uh, business that is actually, talk about the Fortune 100, 500 companies, the S&P 500, those are big businesses to me. And so how would you do it? I mean, we have some 40 or 50 million businesses in America. Where, where's your line between big and small, or is that just uh, a metric we don't need to worry about? Well, if you believe the Small Business Administration, that the, the, their definition of a small business is generally a company that has more than 500 employees. I don't think any of us would call a 501-person company no, a big business. So you're really talking about companies that have a billion, five billion in revenue, 5,000 workers kind of thing, and then upwards from there. Yeah, it seems like in, in the, you mentioned both sides of the aisle have, have, have issues with big business. It seems like if you want to put, if you want to demonize something, you put big in front of it, big pharma, big oil. Would you say big before we came on? Big. Well, there's one, one, one big uh, chicken. One big, big chicken. Big chicken. <laughs> and, and he didn't mean the chickens were big. He meant the, the big chicken companies. Uh, 
But you see this with you know big broadband, and uh, you know you just put big in front of it, and it's seen now as as bad. Somehow that the whole act of getting big. Uh, we cite in the book talk a lot about Justice uh, Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice, and back in the when the Industrial Revolution really happened, he was the leading advocate against bigness, against getting big, and and he actually used the term the mark of Cain. So if you were a big company, you were basically had gotten big only by sinning. The only way you could get big was by committing a sin, in other words, by cheating. Uh, in the natural order of things for Brandeis, everybody, all the firms would be small. It was only if you cheated, that's how you got big. There's a romanticism on both the left and the right. And the, the agrarian view Thomas Jefferson had was that you, you know, the country was going to be built on, with yeomen, with their small small uh, workshops and their, their farms, and that was, you couldn't have a democracy unless the country looked like that. Yeah, yeah. There was a view that, the, that, that somehow this the, being a wage earner somehow diminished mankind, diminished humans, diminished their ability to participate in the democratic process. And so only independent yeomen, farmers, shopkeepers uh, who owned their own shop, that that was really about what America was, was, uh, was founded on. Now, obviously, Hamilton and that Hamiltonian tradition was, was very opposite of that. Hamilton said, if we don't get it, big, bigger companies, we're going to be completely dependent upon the British for the rest of our lives and, and suffer all of the problems with it. So that tension in American politics has been there really since the founding of the Republic. Rob uh, makes a great distinction in his book between different types of entrepreneurs in terms of small business. And I think it's a very important point, which is there's an ecosystem, a business ecosystem that exists. And it does require small, medium-sized, and large companies, as we defined them earlier. But the ecosystem is in, can be in steady state without having government forces pushing it in the wrong direction. And I think it's a great point he makes in the book, because we're, we're not saying that we don't need entrepreneurial small businesses, because they, they will become the larger businesses of the future. Amazon started as a small company, and it became a large company. Almost all companies have to have that trajectory. Uh, and so it's very important to have the ecosystem working. The problem is we have people with a thumb on the scale. Those people being the regulators? The government, the people. regulators. It's, it's, it's interesting, uh, and Rob also makes this point in the book, that we talk about antitrust today. Well, trust, of course, we know Teddy Roosevelt was a big trust buster. Well, trust is not even a business structure that currently exists, yet we still have the legacy of that era in our business. Well, one of the interesting things Rob writes about in his book is I guess there was a law enacted, Congress enacted a law that, that would prevent companies from colluding together to enter into a cartel to, to fix prices. And so, so they stopped doing that, but what did they do? They merged. They merged. Yes. And it kicked off the merger wave, the first merger wave in the country of, what, 1890 to yeah. 1880, 1890, that era? Yeah. What, what happened then? Well, you know, the funny thing, not funny thing, the, the, the Europeans never developed antitrust the way do, that we did. So their firms cartelized. So the Germans, that's why the German firms never really got big. The French firms, by and large, they never got big. They just cartelized. They, they collaborated and colluded. Uh, our tradition was we said you can't do that. So these firms said, boy, uh, with this new technologies that were coming about in the 1880s, 1890s, steel and machines and electricity, we, we've got to get big, we've got to get scale. So they merged. And that was the beginning of the, the really the, 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 the big American firms that we still have today that we should be proud of, uh, firms like U.S. Steel and uh, uh, 
Singer Sewing Machine, for example. Uh, many, many, many big firms emerged out of that, and it, we became the global leader uh, for that precise reason. Well, but I'm sorry, I was going to say, Bill, there are good economic reasons for that. When you look at the economics of scale, uh, what we practically speaking, if you look at scale, overhead scale, for example, when you double the size of a business, its unit cost goes down by 20%. That's a logarithmic relationship. And so what it says is bigger businesses are inherently more efficient. Now, if you drive too far, you create complexity. So there are sweet spots for various industries, various businesses, but the economics of large business make a tremendous amount of sense. There was a study done back in the early 80s, late 70s by the Federal Trade Commission, and it analyzed the light bulb industry. And it found that the most efficient produ producer system for the US light bulb industry were two firms, they had only two firms. Well, wouldn't this reduce competition? The point being, to your, to your point, Ron, the scale economies of making light bulbs were so big that the sort of minimum efficient factory size could produce half the light bulbs in America. Why would we want 10 light bulb factories that were all inefficient? But, but not every industry is subject to the same no. dynamic. No. I think you, we've got this, this concept of traded goods versus services, things like that. Not every, not every industry is going to benefit with big companies. Like, sure. I guess if you're in a leather business or dry cleaner, dry cleaner things like that, you right. don't get much scale right. by pulling together a thousand right. dry cleaners. Right. In fact, that's it, right. Yeah. And that's why we have a natural, you know, a natural uh, distribution of firm size. Now, the problem, though, in the U.S. is we, it's an unnatural distribution right now because the thumb is on the scale, and we can talk a little bit more about that, to make it so that more of the economy is in smaller, less efficient firms and less of the economy is in mid-size and larger, more efficient firms. Hmm. And it's easy for people to focus on very large business. There is a, a concept of, of increasing returns to scale, and particularly network-type businesses. So if you look at a company like Microsoft and Microsoft Windows, uh, you look at network organizations and companies, the cost goes up linearly as you add an additional node, but the value goes up as the quadratic, the square of the number of people. So people focus on that. We're going to get back to quadratic in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Ron Nickel and Rob Atkinson, and we're talking about big business and small business and, and how the economy grows. So let's jump back to quadratic. We're talking about the scale that happens when a... Right, because as you think about it this way, as if you have a, a telephone business, you add an additional subscriber, you add the wire that goes to that subscriber, but the value for that subscriber is they can call everybody else in the network. Well, that's the economics of Facebook. That's the economics of many of these large businesses that we have today, as I mentioned Microsoft earlier. Those businesses, they get an enormous amount of attention, so everybody believes they're running the world, when in fact, to Rob's point, there's a distribution of business size based on economics. Well, I mean, imagine, I couldn't agree more. There's a, there, we go through the book, we talk about uh, in one of the chapters, what, what are the economics behind different industries having different sizes? And so, for example, you have some industries where you have network effects like Facebook. I mean, who, who wants to have Facebook? And as we say in the book, you know, the government breaks up Facebook and, and into two parts, Facebook and Headbook. Who in their right mind wants to have to post everything right. twice? You have one Facebook set of friends and you want to do it once. So that's the reason for those industries. There are other industries that are heavily do heavy-duty innovation industries. And I look at a company like Boeing. They have to spend an enormous amount of money to build the, not just in R&D and design, but then in tooling and setting up to build, for example, the 787, the all-carbon fiber plane. Billions and billions of dollars, which they don't make back unless they sell a lot of planes. And so 
It's the reason why we have two major airline companies. We have Airbus companies. and we have Boeing. Airbus and Boeing, and that's, that is the natural order of that market. History lesson. We didn't start out with the big businesses. We've, you know, we had an agrarian economy in, eight, in 1800 and then grew slowly through, uh, um, you know, through that century. What were the triggers that we went from that economy to the economy we had today? Well, what I would say is railroads, where you had yeah. connecting markets together, so you had a natural uh, aggregation from that point of view. Rob, what else would you say? Yeah, no, I think, it, so you're absolutely right, Ron. There's two things. There's, there's there are changes on the supply side and the demand side. So railroads on the demand side. I'm a, I'm a company, and I've got a great factory, but I can only serve people within a 70-mile radius of me because that's only how far the horse and wagon can go that's economic. After that, it starts costing more. So there's another little factory there. With the railroad, all of a sudden, I can serve you know, 600 miles, 1,000 miles. And so my factory can get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's one reason. That's one factor. The second is uh, just on the, on the supply side itself. So having uh, technologies like the electric motor and, and, and better machine tools. I mean, think about also just technologies themselves. It never made any sense to have uh, 100 our car companies. You know, in fact, at one point, we had about 60 car companies in the U.S., uh, in the 1910s, it was just lots and lots of little car companies, and uh, I think we got all the way up to 300. Maybe it was 300. I think yeah. it's in the book. But eventually, it was like it made no sense because somebody was going to figure out scale, and it happened to be Henry Ford who figured it out first. And so you only had at the time four major car companies, maybe five, uh, and that was just because of the technology. And that's and an interesting scale. distinction because you've got process innovation. He didn't invent necessarily a better car. He invented a faster way to make well, the cars. Bill, it's a great, you're hitting on a perfect example, which is January 5th, 1914, was the day Henry Ford announced the $5 workday. Right. And he, worked, he announced, and just so you know, at the time, the, the going salary in Detroit was a dollar or so an hour. So he essentially per increased day. wage, uh, per, sorry, per day. He increases wages by five times. Now, the headline of the Detroit newspaper was Henry Ford works for the working man. Look what he's doing. The Wall Street Journal was Henry Ford destroys American business. <laughs> so what was Henry Ford doing? Well, Henry Ford was, was no, no one's fool. There was a great cartoon in one of the newspapers that showed one of his factory workers pulling up to the factory, getting out in a raccoon coat, and being escorted into the factory. Well, what, what was happening is he couldn't keep his workers. His attrition rate was extremely high. And the reason is because those workers could go over to the Dodge Brothers and build the entire transmission, where on the Henry Ford assembly line, they were tightening a lug nut. And so it was a very boring job. But the economics of assembly lines dominated, and that's where we ended up. And so that's why that business became so large, because it moved from the job shop business to full production. It was also so much more productive that he could afford to pay $5 a day exactly. and still make a profit and that's sell right. a cheap, uh, low-cost low car, low-price right. car. So the, the, the technology changes, uh, we've, we, you know, we've had, we had the railroad, that was an innovation, and then we had the electric motor, electricity, uh, and there was, though that we could create new products with that, the first wave was the railroad, when big is beautiful, and then the manufacturing companies in the then 20s. The manufacturing companies, sure. both sure. What, what they would call a discrete part assembly, which is a yeah. car, but also flow. So things like the chemical industry or the wood products industry, those you develop, you know, very, very big, expensive machines to put product in one end and outcomes, inputs in one end and outcomes products. That was, that was another factor. 
But what's interesting, Bill, is we, one of the things we did is we looked at the evolution of firm size in the U.S. And what we found is in the last 40 years, the average manufacturer has been getting smaller. Mm. Part of that, I think, is China. But part of it also is, is what people call flexible manufacturing technology. It's easier now to customize products with, te with, with technology and manufacturing. So you can make, uh, you, can, you can be a company that makes like really cool ones of these. And you don't have to be as big as you, you might have 50 or 100 years ago. But it's just the opposite in the rest of the economy because of information technology. So insurance, banking, a whole set of sectors are getting bigger. And, uh, and that's all to the good because, as we point out in the book, and as Ron, as you mentioned, the bigger you are, the more productive you are. I thought the Internet was going to allow smaller firms to be Everybody at scale. What well, why was I that wrong? Rob made a very good point earlier that there is a natural distribution of firm stocks. And within that distribution, by the way, when we talk about big business, as we tried to define earlier, yeah. in the range that we talked about, there still is a change in that distribution. So big businesses are changing. In fact, uh, when you look at the rank, if you rank businesses from the 1950s and you rank order them, what you see for the first until the 1990s or so, it's what I would call laminar flow, where the ranking pretty much remains the same. Large, the large businesses that were the leaders of their industry stay large. What's happened in the last couple but of decades. You stopped in the laminar flow. Yes, meaning they didn't change their order. So they the, the one that was on top stayed on top, the one that was at the bottom stayed on the bottom. What's happened now, just imagine this, that the rankings are completely jumbled up, that some of the companies who are in the mid-range now become the, the most successful and vice versa, which means we, we can't put a thumb on the scales against big business because it's hard to succeed in big business. Well, the thing that we pointed out about the benefits of big business, I guess, is illustrated by what Henry Ford did, $5 wage. Workday. And big business pays better. The benefits are better. I mean, talk about the benefits of... So uh, we went through the book and we looked at, again, statistical evidence, mostly from government agencies, on a wide array of variables. Big business pay... on Again, and these are all averages. So some small companies might do great, some big companies not so great. But on average, they pay higher wages, they're more productive, they export more, they do more research and development, they injure their workers less, they lay their workers off less, they have a higher share of women and minorities, hmm. uh, they pollute less, they spend more on, they do better on cybersecurity, there are fewer cybersecurity breaches, you know, you name it. The only two areas where one could maybe say small business gets to be tied is, one is job creation. Now the mythology in the U.S. is small business are the job creators. Reality is, if you go and you track, as the government does, they'll, they'll look at every small business created, let's say, in 1995, and they create a lot of jobs. And then they follow that cohort. Each firm, every single year, that cohort loses businesses, until, loses employment until the year 22. Hmm. So small business creates a lot of jobs. They also destroy an enormous number of jobs. They're just on, an, on a revolving cycle, unfortunately. A lot of, somebody starts a business, it fails, they might start another one. It's really big business that has created more of the jobs in the U.S. And that's a great point, Rob, because that also shows why you have stability in the workforce in large firms, because yeah. people know they have a secure job. And actually, people will sometimes take more career risk in a large firm because they will do that to get ahead and become successful. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Rob Atkinson and Ron Nickel, and we're talking about uh, business, big business and small business and the economics of uh, how big businesses get big. As I was thinking about a spine for the show, I mean, this is an extremely complicated topic. We're talking about 
microeconomics, macroeconomics. We're talking about comparisons among countries, things like that. But as I'm hearing you two talk, I'm thinking the economics are pretty well known in the sense that if you're in a particular industry, if it's given, if you if it's susceptible to innovation through technology or scale or, or managerial excellence, which is a soft uh, a soft technology, you can get pretty big and successful. That's almost a science. I don't know. If that's quadratic, Ron, but it's 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 <laughs> a, a science. science. On the other hand, we've got the politics, and what yeah. I what I was fumbling around for at the beginning of the show, and I was trying to get. The, we have this idea of producer republicanism, and then the other one was market fundamentalism. And it seems like we know how the economic models work, and yet we've got the political theories, libertarianism, progressivism, all the sorts of isms and things like that that interact, mm -hmm. and it creates uh, it creates our uh, you know our the, the bias against monopolies and things like that. Talk to how the politics interact with the economics. So. You know, part of the politics are it's just, you know, you, you never lose by kissing a baby on the campaign trail, and you never lose by praising small business. Unless you're Joe Biden. Then you might. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just one of those things politicians naturally, you know, you, we go back and look at, you know, John F. Kennedy, Johnson, Reagan, Ford, Bush, Clinton, they all sing the praises of small business. But it's more than that, though. I mean, if you, there was a re, an op-ed that we cited that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan wrote before he became Speaker, obviously Republican leader. Um, and the title of the op-ed was Down with Big Business, which is really, you think about that from what you used to think the Republican Party was to more recently, where you could say down with big business. So what was Speaker Ryan thinking about? Well, he was worried that big business was, you know, uh, it was too big, it wasn't about market forces anymore, and also crony capitalism, they were influencing Washington too much. So on the sort of libertarian right, and this goes all the way back to Hayek, a you know, famous conservative libertarian economist, if you will, they just feel like the natural order of things are price-mediated markets. In other words, uh, I sell you something, you buy something, it's all done. Whereas John Kenneth Galbraith back in the 50s talked about that there's a planning sector. Remember, when companies are so big, they, 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 it, not everything is pure market, if you will. Uh, I think Galbraith went overboard, but that's sort of the fear. Well, we, we, want the, we want markets to work, and the best way for that to work is for you to have five people and you to have six and me to have 12. That's one thing. On the left, what you have now is what we call uh, um, producer localism, progressive localism, where the view is, Boy, these big companies are suspect. They're 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 foreign in the sense of they're not part of us anymore. I and mean, we just want everybody to work at a local uh, bakery that maybe a worker-owned local bakery because you know think locally, think globally, produce locally, act locally. It's just this well, localism is good, and we, we don't like these big bookstores because we want to go to the local bookstore and we want to go to the local bodega and have our kale and <laughs> craft brewed local beer and. Uh, and that's sort of the idyllic view for a lot of people on the left. And unfortunately, most Americans work at big companies. <laughs> but not just that, Robbie. The fact is, look, well, look at the consumer. Everyone yeah. romanticizes the yeah. small business, yet how many people order from Amazon? Yeah. They love the, the big business, the economics they afford, the yeah. convenience they yeah. afford. The other thing is big business, uh, because it's a target, it's easy to, to create villains from bigness. 
So you have this, quote, CEO of the large business. But the reality is the average tenure of a CEO is five years. And so this is not a job that people stay in very long. It's a very tough and very uh, competitive job, uh, yet there's a lot of uh, villains created out of large business. Well, and we've got the good versus evil. I think to pick up on the point you raised, Rob, you write a great line in your book. Uh, the new right, the libertarian, was inspired by Ayn Rand to go galt, as John galt. <laughs> yes. And the new left was inspired by Tolkien to go hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a line from my co-author, Mike Lind. I wish I okay. could take credit. Attribution, for that, but, all right. Well, but, uh, <laughs> it's a great line, because it really is. You know, I mean, you, you, if you watch Lord of the Rings... Uh, an appealing place to live, and you know, I'd love to, what I'd love to be able to do. I'd love to be able to live in Hobbiton with my standard of living, <laughs> but that's you can't have. You only have one of those. You can't have both of those. Oh gosh, I mean, we have to choose. <laughs> and that's sort of what economics is. No, we have to choose. And, and if you ask Americans, really, what what do they choose? You know, they show it by polls. They show it by their behavior. They choose income, standard of living, convenience. I mean, that's what Americans want. Well, uh, you, know, you also write and that big has become suspect because of the scandals. And Enron was a big problem for everyone. And then all the other, you know, Barclays had a scandal. And Wells Fargo was encouraged people, their, their salespeople to sell products people didn't want or need. Yet you also point out that, well, yes, they're scandals because they're big and obvious and they get reported. And yet they're 1.3 million C corporations, and so the denominator is pretty small when you look at the scandals compared to all the businesses out there. That's right. No, and you do, you know you don't <clears throat> hear about the you largely don't hear about the scandals from the small companies. They don't make the front page of the New York Times. So uh, there's you know lots and lots of bad behavior by small companies, just as there is, you know clearly there's bad behavior by some big companies, and we shouldn't try to whitewash that. I mean, what Wells Fargo did, for example, was wrong. What Enron did was wrong, um, but it doesn't, you know, they get tarred with the, the broad brush. Oh, they're all like that, and that's, that's just a mistake. Well, and they also operate in unlike industries, big tobacco and big pharma. Maybe we can talk with the two of you about big pharma and drug prices. Sure. That's on my, everybody's mind. Big, it's obvious big pharma is overcharging. Yeah. What are the economics well, a of couple, creating a, a drug? Well, a couple of points I'd make on that. One is... Uh, again, because of uh, government meddling after World War II in terms of the health insurance, we have a distorted market in healthcare. So that creates distortion one. The second thing is there, uh, there is a case to be made, I think, for an inefficiency in R&D and drug manufacturers. If you look at what was ha what's happening in terms of the acquisition and spinoff of some of the R&D parts of the business and so forth, uh, some of the models need to change, but they are changing because the competition is occurring, and so it will sort itself out. So I think, you know, two points on that. One, and first of all, most of the scandals in that space have come from small and mid-sized drug companies, not the major pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly or Merck. The other component of that is, you know, it's very clear. I mean, if you read what economists who, you know, independent, scholarly, academic economists write, there is no doubt that if we impose price controls, we will have fewer drug discoveries in the future. The idea of my son and my daughter not having a much better pharmaceutical cabinet, you know, for them to be able to go and get cures and, and, and treatments than, than I have, it, to me, horrifies me. So we have to recognize that one of the prices we pay for higher drugs is we're funding an enormous amount of R&D, and 
Alzheimer's and cancer and diabetes and all of these breakthroughs. And we're making you know, a lot of progress. The number of new drugs in the last three years, five years, has been significantly up. It's growing. The last component I'll say is if these companies are making, you know, charging outrageous prices, then they should have outrageous profits. You don't see that. You really don't. Uh, there have been studies by, I believe, the CBO, but we reviewed all of those. And, uh, you know, the profits are a little bit higher, maybe one or two percentage points higher when you adjust for risk. They're not massively higher. They're not like 40% when everybody else is 12. One of the policy prescriptions you have in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in your book is that we ought to be more serious about the nature of modern government and modern businesses and globalism. And we really need to think differently about the relationship between businesses and, and government, particularly in response to China. And Ron, do you want to comment at all on the experience you've had working with the big companies sure. and their relationship with the... Uh, well, it's a, it, it's a misnomer to talk, talk, talk about companies, large companies, particularly very large companies, as being national companies. They are truly international companies and global. If you look at the large companies in the U.S., they have uh, very large foreign markets. Uh, and so, uh, again, um, it, it requires you to look at the world as, it, as the, the product of the market as opposed to looking at a country. Uh, just using the example we talked about a minute ago, in pharma, one of the problems in pharma is because of the difference in price, drug prices around the world, you have subsidies occurring by the U.S. U.S country, patients in the U.S. are subsidizing many other parts of the world because, again, they're using size. They're negotiating from a national standpoint. And so the National Health Service in England is negotiating as a very large customer to a lot of the pharma companies, and they will therefore get lower prices. I would argue they're free riding on us. Yes, I would agree. There, I do. But I think, you know, Bill, you raised a really important point, which is Increasingly, the U.S. companies are competing against major Chinese companies. Those Chinese companies oftentimes are state-owned, or they're all state-backed in one way or another. And China doesn't have our view of, oh, we should break up companies. They're the exact opposite. They go out and look at companies, and they say, okay, you two companies, you got to join. They did that in high-speed rail, for example. Their high-speed rail company now, CRRC, is the largest in the world, has two-thirds of the global market. So if we start to atomize our companies, our GMs, our IBMs, whatever, if we start to atomize them, they are going to be very, very hobbled against really robust, tough Chinese competitors. You know, we're not going to become China, nor should we, where we massively subsidize our companies. But the least we can do is we can allow them to get the scale they need to go and compete robustly with, with companies like from China. Rob, that's a really good point. In fact, if you look at the Chinese companies, they are starting with an assumption that big is beautiful. Yeah. And so they're putting those companies yeah. together very quickly. Yeah. Um, a number of years ago, I had a meeting in China with the semiconductor teams. And they, they, they basically said, we're going to create semiconductor business. Yeah. And they create an industry. Yeah. They, don't let, they don't wait until a lot of small companies happen to figure out the merge. They yeah. actually do it. Yeah. They're doing that in, health, in, in pharmaceuticals now. Uh, so they have, I don't know, 500 little small pharmaceutical companies, mostly generics. And they realize this isn't going to work. So they've imposed the most draconian pricing and regulatory rules where they're intentionally going to drive out 90% of those companies out of business. Well, we're talking about China and we're talking about them being pragmatic about the size of business. They're making economic arguments. The, econ the Chinese are run by a Politburo that's largely educated as in the STEM sciences. 
and we're largely educated as lawyers, right. so we're not quite interested in the business model. But it does get to one of the questions I have. I think one of the unpopular, one of the reasons business, big businesses become unpopular is unsure to which country they owe allegiance. Yeah. And, sure. you know, you see that when the tech companies go into China and they agree to see, give away certain kinds of technology. And we talked about this before mm-hmm. because they want to make their quarterly numbers. And so there's this feeling that maybe the U.S. companies haven't been loyal to, to U.S. national interests. No, that's absolutely true, Bill. That happens. I mean, uh, an example I were talking about earlier is Google, where you have an interesting situation where Google is assisting the Chinese in building their infrastructure and technology. And at the same time, their employees in the U.S. are lobbying against the, the working with the U.S. government. Well, not only lobbying against it, but they shut it down, for, I think, for the time being. They may, I think they may be back involved again, uh, that would, but I agree with that. But the key thing there, I think, is it, it's, there's really kind of two views, two, two sort of answers, and both are wrong. One is somehow we should just say, oh, you big companies, you're being disloyal and you should be more loyal. Okay, well, that's not going to happen. They're, they're, you, know, you, you get the CEO who decides to do that, they're going to be out of their job, not in five years, but in one year. That's right. The second answer is really what the progressive left wants, which is, well, let's just give up on big companies. We'll just have an economy of small companies, uh, maybe 100 workers at most, and we know they'll be loyal to the U.S. I think the right answer is you have to have incentives that better align the interests of big companies with American interests. And we do have our own interests. We have interest around defense. We have interest around good jobs. We We should use incentives to better get get better alignment I would argue but who would be the we in that sentence and who would create who would be creating the incentives I mean how do we how to develop a consensus seems to me the reason I wanted to talk about this is we've got to develop a consensus that biz big is not bad yeah. right and as you put it big is beautiful for a lot of very good economic reasons but also you know people live a lot better we love all the well, it's so Rob's goods example, and services. So how, how do we... It's a good question. I, I, here's what I would say. I, I, I'm a believer <clears throat> that you certainly don't want to overregulate, but at the same time, it's all about the level playing field. If you look at all the, the issues around trade, the argument that's being made, and I agree with it, is fair trade makes a lot of sense, where we have a lot of disadvantaged trade agreements today that create distortions in the markets. A lot of these companies, and we had talked about Jeff Imholt a little earlier, but he, before he left uh, as the CEO of GE, he made a point. He said, the glo- old global model is dead. We are going to be localized in most markets around the world. And it wasn't because GE wanted to be localized. It was because they were being forced to localize by governments. And that's the failure of the global trading system of the WTO. If it weren't for these policies, a lot of American companies wouldn't have offshored as much as they did. They were forced to offshore, called, called local, localizing production. You know, they, I, I won't almost say who the firm is, but uh, you know, fairly, you know, certainly a Fortune 100 firm that I know of, were told by the Brazilian government, if you do not open a factory here, you don't get market access. Simple as that. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Ron Nickel and Rob Atkinson, and we're talking about uh, uh, business and economies and. Uh, how America can more effectively integrate its great businesses with America's strategies here and abroad. Uh, consumer interest versus producer interest. We've had a, we've had a, uh, I think a, a consensus in America that we were, it's good to offshore, it's good to do things, go to the lowest cost place we can because that's going to drive consumer prices down, and that is good. 
And yet now we're seeing a school of thought, and I think it's come rising out of what Trump has brought to the table, this elite versus the rest of us. A lot of America has been left behind. And Oren Cass, for example, has written, I think, interestingly sure. about how we need to think about producer interests, that sure. is, the, the workingmen, in addition to just lower prices. Thoughts? Well, I, I would just say this, Bill, and uh, it's a theme, which is <laughs> when you interrupt the equilibrium that exists from, in markets, and by the way, there are necessary checks and balances on markets, but as you say, when low-cost labor is available in other parts of the world, people will move to use that low-cost labor. And so today there's a lot of discussion around having firms, be, the governance be based on stakeholder as opposed to shareholder value. And what that, what that means in the extreme case is putting, forcing a number of people, for example, employees on the board. This is what the Business Roundtable did, well, round yes, did recently? Yes, and, and, and some of the, the candidates for president are making a big deal about this. And I would argue that we have a fairly fluid and competitive labor market in the U.S. In fact, I would argue, having worked for 30 years in various parts of the world, that the U.S. labor market is one of the most fluid in the world, where in the U.S., we have employees at will. That means they can leave when they want, and it means that they can be fired at the will of the company. That creates a dynamic that you actually have more labor mobility. You go to Europe, where they have work councils, it's very difficult to downsize a company in Europe. It's very difficult to make them more efficient and more effective. But I thought labor mobility was decreasing in the United States as people are increasingly unwilling to pick up and leave Cleveland or whatever to well, go to go to Texas. Geographic mobility is geographic, right. geographic mobility about is tenure right. employment tenure. So I agree with the last part of what Ron said, and that you know, if, if we had essentially the employment structure that the federal government has, where you, you know, private sector employees can't get laid off. You know, it'd be awful because you, you couldn't, you can't downsize when you right. need it. It is terrible. The Europeans are suffering from that. Having said that, though, I do think that some of what, what happened in the U.S. were due to a couple of different forces. One is the dollar is not really a, a market currency. It's, 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 the dollar was higher than it should have been because it's a reserve currency. And secondly, the Chinese in particular were manipulating their currency. If those factors were not, and subsidizing, if you took away those factors, you would still have offshoring. We, we, you know, we make T-shirts there. But some of the offshoring wouldn't have happened, or it would have happened more slowly. So part of it just was the amount and the speed was, was somewhat artificial. It's not to say that we can keep all of that. Ridiculous notion. We can't keep all of it. But we could have slowed it down, kept some of it. The second is we, frankly, didn't have as good a policies as we could. So, for example, we've long argued for a better research and development tax credit in the U.S. We're, we're anemic compared to our competitors. Uh, we don't do as good a job in training uh, advanced uh, manufacturing workers, apprenticeship programs. There's a whole set of things we could do so that our companies are more likely to keep work here. And we just, in my view, that's been a mistake. We haven't done that. I agree with that, Robin. I, I give an exa example I would use the IT services business as an example of an industry that, that rushed to outsource. A tremendous amount of resource went to India, went to other markets. And what's happened is the reaction in the U.S. has been to automate. And a lot of that labor now has been bid up in those countries. And that labor arbitrage is going away. So I think it's a temporary in, in most businesses. And I also agree with you, it's more in the commodity business where it's prevalent than in the more high-tech businesses. Yeah. But, you know, we could have policies, for example, to support more automation. Like, I'm a I'm a big believer in using the tax code to support capital investment. And if we had done that consistently, and, and if we continue to, then we'll get more automation. That makes us more cost competitive. 
So you think about it, we don't have to compete on Chinese labor costs. We have to compete on Chinese product costs. And we can have higher labor costs as long as we're more productive. And so if we work on those how, kinds how, of things. How do you change the tax code to bring that about? Well, you can do a couple of things. One, I think one of the benefits of the recent uh, Corporate Tax Reform Act of a year and a half ago or so was it allowed what's called first-year expensing. So if I buy a big machine, I get to write it off on my taxes in the first year as opposed to depreciating it over five or ten years. And secondly, the prior version of that, to go back to this whole point, the prior version of that for years and years and years was small businesses could expense all their equipment investment and big companies could invest almost, expense almost none of it. So this tax provision changed that. I thought that was a step in the right direction, but it was only a five-year provision. Well, let's, let's develop that. Small business has been subsidized. We've got their own small business administration. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the political preferences. Frankly, there are, what, 35, 40, 50 million small businesses, and they all vote. And that's sure. why I think politicians yeah. are paying yeah. attention. And, Rob, what do we have, a couple thousand CEOs? And, and uh, much, much smaller. Much, much smaller. So how do you level the playing field so we have economic policy that doesn't say big is good or big is bad, small is good? Well, you know, what's funny is one of the biggest, I got two complaints for this book. One is that I hate small business, which was wrong. I, I run a small business. The second is that, uh, oh, uh, clearly the bat cats are in control of Washington. And all I, my only response to that is drive down First Street Northwest and look at this giant building that on the top of it says the National Association of Realtors. So when you're big enough to have your own building two blocks from the Capitol, You've got a lot of power and a lot of clout. The realtors are all small. They're little, small, independent realtors, and yet they have their own lobbying organization. So to your point, Bill, the National Federation of Independent Business, the beer wholesalers, or you go down the list, you look at the big money lobbyists. You know, Some of them are big companies, but many of them are these aggregations of small companies. I think the short answer is how do you do it? You have to have the conversations we're having today. You have to make policymakers understand that a level playing field for America is going to mean a more prosperous and competitive America. And I think that the level playing field is exactly the right point, which is stop trying to meddle. Stop trying to put in forces and incentives that create distortions. Let the market work. Now, it doesn't work in all cases. We need places where we have to influence that. But generally well, speaking, it can work. But if you looked at the tax code recently... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quite large. It's a, so they're very unlevel. I've used one of my Ron words to describe. A couple that. of very good studies. One, one by AEA, American Enterprise Institute, another actually by the Congressional Budget Office. And if you had a neutral tax code vis-a-vis -vis size, small companies would be paying something on the order of a hundred billion dollars a year more. Hmm. I want to come back to the lobbying point. Jonah Goldberg, who writes uh, for the National Review and interesting, interesting books on many things, he. He writes, the bigger the business, the more reliable the partner for government. You're saying that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, I think as a definition of a business, probably so, but not definition of industries. Okay. So, for example, large companies can, can afford efforts to do lobbying and so forth, where small industries can't. Ron, you've been inside the C-suite for four decades now, five decades, and... How are CEOs feeling? Do they feel the, the lobbying and the... I mean, how much time do they spend on managing the relationship with government versus uh, creating value? Well, that's a minor part of their time. It's a, they're a besieged group of people. 
it's a very difficult job to be a CEO. And you know that, Bill. You've been a CEO. It's, I, uh, I did it's it a for hard 14 job. years. Yes. It was, uh, uh, and it never, That's why it, you have gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm actually only 32 years old. <laughs> this is what it does. That's what it does, yeah. Ages you. Yeah. But it's tough. I mean, it's a tough job, and it's, uh, it's something I don't think a lot of people recognize that I mentioned earlier, and that the average tenure is only five years. So these people are not in the job for – now, there are examples where people are in the job for decades, but that's not the norm. The norm is a very short tenure to make change. Well, uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Rob Atkinson and Ron Nickel, and, and right now we're talking about the very sympathetic uh, plight of the average big company CEO. Ron, so the CEOs are not feeling good, yet how do, they, how do there's all this notion about CEO compensation and, and uh, how outrageously they're compensated relative to the uh, uh the uh, the uh, receptionist. I mean, how do you well, answer those a, questions about in, in, income inequality sure, in big sure. business? It's a, it's a good point. And the latest issue of The Economist had, I think, very good articles on inequality, uh, which I think is another one of those shows you could do, Bill, on the myth of inequality. But I would say well, this. Well, when you don't count transfer payments, it seems pretty unequal. Exactly. But we've done a lot to level. There are many, many factors. Yeah, that's right. But to the point I, you're making, I mean, this, it comes down <clears> to where the value gets created. And it's risk-reward. So, um, you know, and there are many examples, and it's, it's what Rob pointed out earlier. The small companies where uh, there's examples of this don't get publicized, but the large companies where a CEO may make a lot of money uh, get publicized quite frequently. And some of those, those CEOs are uh, the right place at the right time. But if you look at, on average, what CEOs do to contribute to a company's shareholder value creation, the market makes sense. Now, there are distortions in this, too. And we went through a period of time where, uh, frankly, compensation consultants were essentially comparing every CEO against every other CEO in their industry, which ratchets up the CEO compensation. And so uh, there are examples where you we have, have to, You have to love there. those compensation consultants. The CEO certainly did at the time. <laughs> well, there's another problem, too, which is uh, uh, during the Clinton administration, there was a concern about the uh, compensation. So what they did is they capped compensation after you pay above that, it's taxable. And so what happened? Stock options. So again, it distorted that. I think we just leave it alone to some extent. I will say, though, Bill, one of the studies we cited in the book, a little bit old now, but it was a good study, and it looked at the, uh, you add up all the Fortune 500 CEO compensations, so stock, salary, all the rest, and you compare it the top 14 hedge fund managers that year made more. So that's a big problem. Second thing, though, if you look at the studies on um, uh, inequality by firm size, again, to your point, there's no difference. Uh, small, there's inequality in small firms and big firms. A lot of small CEOs make a lot of money. Secondly, if you go and go look by country, countries that have more large firms have less inequality than countries that have a lot of small firms. So there's a good, you know, we, we can argue as we should or have a discussion about is there too much overall inequality in the U.S. economy? Fine. But it's not due to firm size. Well, would that be just the difference between first world economies and third world economies no, as we it's used certainly, to call it? No, it's certainly that. It's certainly that. But it's also within the OECD. Wild income inequality sure. if you look at uh, developing yeah. countries. Yes. yes. One of the points we also make in the book, the best indicator to determine whether a country is underdeveloped, undeveloped, is the share of jobs in small businesses. 
Yeah, that was a very interesting statistic yeah. in the book. So if you have like 80, 90% in small business, I can guarantee you're, you're an undeveloped Well, economy. and that's because if you're a small business, you're basically unemployed. You're working for yourself. Yeah. You're scratching right. out some sort no of subsistence. Exactly. You're an agrarian, exactly. free agrarian economy. Exactly, or right. lo local services or tourism. And yeah, you, you've never uh, And America's out. gone from what? 100 years ago, 40%, 50% of Americans were, quote, self-employed. Now it's about 10%. Yeah. It's the lowest rate of self-employment we've ever had. And you have to ask why that happened. I mean, it happened because of many yeah, of the Yeah, we, we have political about. rhetoric which says to be self-employed is to be yeah. uh, living the American dream. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's the anachronism in today's culture. And I think that Rob points this out in the book very effectively, which is that was the roots of that was the agrarian economy of the, of the 17th and 18th century. So we're living in a politically romantic time when we want to go back to, I guess, if you're... Well, it's interesting that many people believe it. So it, it obviously works, I mean, because <clears throat> there's a lot of dialogue on it, a lot of discussion around it. Well, if you want to go back to that, I have two words, modern dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's a subset of what, what's created for us with all these big companies. They, you know, Tyler Cowan, a uh, friend, I think, of yours, written a book that, that pay on to big business. And he points out that big business provides most of all the other things we enjoy. Yeah. Air conditioning. Okay. Although some of us think air conditioning is a problem because before Washington had air conditioning, the politicians went home for the summer. <laughs> well, how do you, how, Rob, how do you make the case? What's been the, uh, I mean, I think, I think we can make the case. We've, we've scratched the surface here about the economics of industries and technology and managerial scale, it, it works, yet the political firestorm that big, big business faces and policymakers face is real. Well, look, I think one of the biggest factors, and we write about it in the book, is big businesses has, has got, they've got to stop being apologetic for being big. You ask big businesses today, you talk to the CEOs, and what do they say? The first thing they say is, we support lots of small businesses. That's fine. But they need to be, I don't want to say loud and proud, but they at least need to assert, look, big businesses, our big business, all big businesses as a group play an important role. Big business is on the defensive, and they've been on the defensive for many, many years now. You know, you, you see all of these conferences that they put on in Washington about how they're helping small companies. They're almost apologetic for being big. And as long as they keep doing that, it's going to get be hard to have support for it. And I think it's going to hurt the country because... When you have the CEOs of large businesses that are very successful apologizing for it or trying to change the mission of the company from shareholder value to other social objectives, you're changing the, the reason the company is successful. Well, what's your take on the shareholder value versus the shareholder, the stakeholder, stakeholder value? Value that Business Roundtable came out sure. and they said. I, I'm not an agree. I don't agree very much with it. I mean, I would say this that I think I tend to fall that you've got to make a profit before you can do all these other things. Yeah, I, I think that uh, society should have and does have mechanisms to accomplish those other goals. Companies should exist to create shareholder value. And, and it's not the short-term quarterly, and that's a problem. The short-term quarterly focus of CEOs and CFOs of companies is a mistake. Shareholder value is the net present value of the future cash flows. Now, you can't measure that because in the future. But if you run your business based on that, you'll be much more successful, and the country will be much more successful. Look, I think part of the reason why the, this you know, focus on shareholder, stakeholder value came up is, is because there were too many 
companies, big companies, that focused on short-term value creation. So they were willing to sacrifice long-term value creation. Oh, we're going to cut R&D so we could meet our quarterly earnings targets. A lot of people know that's going on, and people are rightly frustrated. Is there a lot of evidence of that? There is a lot of evidence of that. There's a lot of evidence of that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and so I think part of the answer is how could we better align societal, what societal interests are, it is in the interest of society to have profitable companies in the long run. Well, and we don't do that. You know, we mentioned I ran a public company. Do you know what it's like to go in front of your shareholders every 90 days? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 I and you, a, you basically want to say, well, yeah. you know, not a whole lot's changed. Yeah. I mean, we've got some fluctuation yeah. in the numbers, yeah. but we're still pushing yeah. ahead. Yeah. You don't get to say that. Yeah. But I would argue, I, I agree, it's a very difficult thing. And I see my clients go through this all the time. I think the, the best ones are the ones that keep the eye on the big picture and focus on the long term and create short-term success, and not always short-term success, but if they can explain what they're doing with a strategy and be clear about it, shareholders would give them a break. I think it's very complicated because I think, as you point out, the average CEO has been on the job five years. It takes about two years to really learn what the job is, and then, and then you become lame duck. And so you get about two or three years of effectiveness. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's very difficult. Hard to not think short term. And I don't know how you align, but I think maybe that's a topic for our next show as we figure out how to align CEOs with long-term value creation. Are there any examples of anybody who has done that, the companies that you feel have, have, have thread that needle? Well, you know, I was, on a, I was at a discussion with Michael Dell recently, or a year and a half ago or so, and Michael Dell was the happiest clam in the pond because he had gone private. And he went public again. And then he went public again. <laughs> but while he was private, he was very happy, he said, because he didn't have to do all this. And he could really think about, you know, the best panel I've ever been on in my entire life was a panel with uh, Jeff Bezos. I moderated a panel with Jeff Bezos and, um, oh, come on, the CEO of Qualcomm, uh, the son of the founder, Irwin, oh, uh, Irwin. Paul Jacobs. Jacobs, Paul Jacobs. Uh, so Qualcomm being a telecom, you know, wireless company and, and Amazon. And... They, the last thing in the world these guys were were short-termists. It was their company. They had a vision. They wanted it to go for the long run, and they were willing to make big, big Good bets, example. risky yeah. bets. Good example. And I think there, there are, so there are companies like that where the, own, the, the owner and the manager are more aligned. Sometimes when you just have professional managers, I mean, especially if you've got a five-year, ten-year man, if you don't get that stock price up, you're out. So, uh, you know, fixing that is a hard problem, but it is a problem. And also, just one other example, you mentioned Amazon. Amazon, for, for many, many years, made no profit. Uh, yet, the message was clear. They were growing. They maintained shareholder value. Didn't have those short-term results, necessarily, but created a tremendous company. There's the solution. Now, I'm sure there are lots of CEOs who'd be happy to be given 25% of their company in exchange for their salary. But that's for the next show. Unfortunately, guys, we've run out of time. I, I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of a complex and interesting topic. And Rob Atkinson, I'd really like to thank you for this because you, it's, uh, it's a real contribution thank to the you. debate and, and counterintuitive. And you take on some things that need to be taken on. Somebody once asked me when I interviewed with them, well, no one agrees with you, so why did you write the book? <laughs> well, that's why I like the book. Big is beautiful. Yeah, it's very good. And, uh, and Ron Nickel, thank you. Uh, I'm uh, I'm glad you've taken time away from helping big companies succeed and sharing your insights today. So uh, thanks. Thanks. 
And that's it for now. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you back on the next Bill Walton Show. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. 